0: It was a shock to see this passage come up whenever I sat down on Monday morning of this week to to look at the text for the Sunday because last week was Advent. Last week, we lit the candle of peace. Last week, not only did we light the candle of peace, but the sermon was entitled Peace on Earth. And we were talking about what the angels were saying whenever Jesus was born, peace on earth, goodwill to men. We're talking about how Christ came for all people. And I sit down on Monday and I open up to Luke. We're going back to our series in Luke that we took a break from, from Advent. And I read this text. And Jesus said, I have not come to bring peace, but rather I've come to bring division. I thought, oh my word. Wow, what a, what a text to come to on the Sunday after Advent. And when we look at this, I think some people could take this text and say, look, the Bible has this contradiction. In one place, it says that Jesus came to bring peace. In another place, Jesus himself says, I've not come to bring peace, but rather division. So is the Bible contradicting itself? And I think this is one of the rules that we need to learn whenever we interpret the Bible. That when we read the Bible, we always need to read the Bible in its literal sense. We don't read it in a hard literalism that says, that says, I'm going to take it at face value. But we say, well, what did the author mean? What did the author intend? And we interpret it in that way. In fact, that's how we all want to be interpreted whenever we speak and talk with people. So take this for an example where you can say two different things, and in two different scenarios, they might be true and they might not be true. Imagine you go into a football stadium, and there's like a let's say there's like a can there be a hundred thousand people in a football? Okay, there can. I'm not good at sports ball, so uh, so you go into this football stadium. There's a hundred thousand people in this football stadium. Could you go into that football stadium and say two contradicting truths and they both be true? I think you could. You could go in there and you could look at that stadium full of 100,000 people and you could say every man, woman, and child in this place is a child of God. Would you be right? Well, I think so. Because every man, woman, child is made in the image of God. They are God's special creation that he loves. And in that sense, they are a daughter or a son of God. Now, could you also go into that same football stadium, be surrounded by 100,000 people and say, not everyone here is a son or daughter of God. And that also be true. Well, yes, it could be true, depending on the sense at which you say it. Because what you might mean when you say it that time is a son or daughter of God is someone who has repented of their sins, believed in Jesus, and are filled with the Holy Spirit. And in that sense, not everybody there is a son or daughter of God. So we have to interpret things in their literal sense. That way, last week, whenever we said that Jesus came to bring peace on earth, it is completely and 100% true. And this week, when we say that Jesus came not to bring peace but division, it's also 100% true. It's not a contradiction, but it's based on the sense at which it's talking about. So this morning, we want to look and say, well, what does Jesus mean here? And what Jesus is saying is that there is a choice that every human being has to make between fire or water, judgment or grace. And either choice you make, you're going to find yourself at odds with those around you. But a choice has to be made. So let's look at this coming fire that Jesus is talking about in verses 49 and 50. In these verses, Jesus said, I came to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already set ablaze, but I have a baptism to undergo and how it consumes me until it is finished. Here, Jesus speaks of either fire or water or baptism. And one of the things that the gospel makes clear is that at the end of time, when Jesus is, makes his second coming, his second appearance on earth, there is going to be a great judgment. Jesus said himself in Mark chapter 16, verses 16 Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Jesus said it this way in John chapter three, verse 36. The one who believes the son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. So when Jesus came the first time, the angels were singing to the shepherds that there's going to be peace on earth. We have to realize the entirety of what they said. There's going to be peace on earth to those whom God is well-pleased. Who is God well-pleased with? God is well-pleased with those who have kissed the sun. God is well-pleased with those who believe in Jesus. That's who will have peace. And those who will face this coming judgment, this coming fire, are those who reject Jesus and his work. This judgment they face is due to their own unbelief and rebellion against God. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in chapter three. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Notice he's talking to believers here. He says, watch out, brothers and sisters, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but rather encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion for who heard and rebelled, wasn't it all those who came out of Egypt under Moses? With whom was God angry for forty years? Wasn't it with those who sinned, whose body fell in the wilderness? What is what is the author of Hebrews talking about here? He's talking about how Israel were slaves in Egypt, and God, through the ten plagues, through His mighty power and works, brought them out of slavery in Egypt, and He was bringing them to a promised land. But many of the people who were crossing that wilderness, stopped believing in God. They had unbelief in their hearts and they rebelled against him. They said, God's not bringing us to a good promised land, but rather God took us away from the good land of Egypt. They said, God is, God is not going to feed us and take care of us. Rather, he took us away from a good supply of food. They continued to disbelieve the goodness of God and what God had done for them. And so what happened? As a result of their own unbelief and rebellion, they died in the wilderness. It's an illustration of what is going to happen at the end of time. Whereas if we live a life of unbelief and rebellion, we will face the fires of judgment, as Jesus said. But in the same two verses, Jesus also speaks of the great hope. Jesus said, I wish that fire were here already because that fire is going to represent a, a burning up of all that is wrong and evil and corrupt in this world. He says, I wish that were happening already, but he says in verse 50, I have a baptism to undergo. Before the fire, there comes water. Jesus said he had to face a baptism. So when Jesus said, I have a baptism to undergo, what's he talking about? He's not talking about being lowered into the water like we do a baptism today, because Jesus was already lowered into his water at the beginning of his ministry with John the Baptist. So what is Jesus talking about? What Jesus is talking about is what baptism points to. That's what Jesus is talking about. So think about whenever we do a baptism. Uh, whenever we do a baptism as, as a church, we, we, we built this place. We did not put a baptistry in it. We still have our watering trough that we're going to set up on the front porch out in the yard. And we do our baptisms outside still. And whenever we do that, we say a few words. And this is what we say. Brother or sister, whoever's being baptized, based upon your profession of faith, we baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ. You are buried with Christ in baptism and you rise to walk in newness of life. What we are doing is we are, through that ceremony, pointing back to what Christ did for us on the cross. That Christ and the baptism he went through as he was dying on the cross, he had the wrath of God on him. He died under the wrath of God and he was buried, but then he rose again again. That's what Jesus is talking about in verse 50 when he says, I have a baptism to undergo and how it consumes me until it is finished. As we think about these verses, one of the things we have to ask ourselves is when we look at our lives and we look, at, we look at what we believe and we look at our actions, will we face the fire or will we go through the water? Will we... Put our faith and hope in Jesus and to walk in his newness of life. Or will we live a life in rebellion against God and face his judgment? There is in the book of Hebrews, when we read that passage in verse 3, I think there's another application we can walk away with here. Whenever we looked at Hebrews chapter 3, if you haven't written this verse down, write this verse down and go back and look at it again over lunch or before you go to bed tonight. It says this in Hebrews 3:12. It says, "Watch out, brothers and sisters, so there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God." But it says, "Encourage each other daily." What is it saying? It is saying that one of the things that leads us to unbelief, one of the things that leads us to rebellion against God, is the deception of sin. It's believing the lies of this world about what will bring us happiness, about what will bring us peace. And we chase after those things which lead us away from God. So the answer that scripture gives us to keep us away from believing the deception of sin and following after God, you know what it is? It's each other. That's what the answer is to staying true in the faith, of staying close to God. What does that? It's the encouragement of the community of Christ. Encourage one another daily while it is still called today. One of the reasons why we planted this church in Harker Heights is we said, man, we need a church in this area of town so that people can have spiritual friendships where they can walk with each other and they might meet each other at the park and they might work together at the Y or at one of our local schools and they can encourage each other daily to keep the faith and to stay away from the deception of sin. So my question for you is, are you a part of a community? We've always said from the beginning that we do not want our church to be like a movie theater. What we do at a movie theater, we walk in, We sit down, we want to be away from everybody else. We want want our elbow room, we want our space. We don't wanna talk with anybody. We don't wanna engage everybody. So what we do is we want to consume and before the lights come back on, we wanna leave. And in many senses, churches have become like movie theaters. But what Paul writes about in the New Testament, what the author of Hebrews writes about is this idea That church should be a place where you are able to engage and encourage one another on a daily basis. Do you have that relationship? We have community groups in our church that's designed to try to meet that need, but it's also just, man, of making connections with people, of not being a stranger, not being anonymous when we come in this place, but being known. There is a coming fire. But before the fire comes, God has provided a way for us to be safe. But it's through the water. I was thinking about this. We we had these Advent candles on our table. Uh, And my kids said this Advent, they said, Dad, can you put the fire out with your fingers this year? I said, yeah, of course. You know how I was able to put the fire out with my fingers without getting burned? You know this trick, right? You lick your fingers. You lick your fingers and then you just extinguish the fire. The way you go through the fire without being burned is if you go through the water first. So go through the water of Christ, putting your trust in him. Now when we read this text, verses 51 through 56, it tells us, that one of the results of the truth of Christ being in the world is that there is going to be a current division. Let's read verses 51 through 56. Do not think that I have come here to bring peace on earth. No, I tell you, rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They'll be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus is saying a result of truth being in the world means that there is going to be a current division or a divide in this world. And we can see that. As we look at the news and as we live our lives, even in this community, that there is going to be a division between those who claim Christ and those who reject Christ. What do I mean? The way that we understand the world, the way that we look at the world is going to be different from the way that other people look at the world. And those two, what we call worldviews, are always going to come into conflict. An example is the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism has as a first question, what is your only hope in life and death? And the answer is our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but rather that we belong to God. When we believe that we are not our own, that we don't belong to ourselves, but we belong to God, that means a few things. It means that we have a responsibility to obey God. It means we have a responsibility to pursue God and align our thoughts and align our lives according to scripture. But what does our culture say? Our culture says you belong to no one except yourself. You have no obligations to anyone that no one can tell you who you are or what you should do. Those two worldviews are going to come into conflict and have been coming into conflict. Because when the world looks at what we say, and we say we are not our own, but we belong to God, they're going to look at that and say, well, that's, that's restrictive. That's taking away people's freedom. That you can't impose what you believe on me. We even see this work out in things like the idea of of marriage and family. That when we believe that we are not our own, but we belong to God, that works itself out in how we view marriage and family. According to scripture, we're going to believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. It should last for a lifetime. That husbands should love their wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that wives should respect their husbands, and that the marriage bed should be honored, and that is the only appropriate context for intimacy between man and a woman. Since we believe that we are not our own, but we belong to God, and that is what God has said in his word is true, that is going to come in conflict with the world that says you belong to no one but yourself You have no obligation to anyone but yourself. And no one can tell you who you are or what you should do. That world is going to look at what we believe in and say, well, that's just patriarchy. That's restrictive. And that's not allowing me to live out my desires. And so we have a conflict of worldviews. There's going to be division. And as we live our lives in this world, we're going to see that division in many places we're going to see it at work. We're going to see it, we're going to see it in in different policies that our culture shapes. We're going to see it in Hollywood and what our entertainment begins to produce and put out. We will see that division, but this division we face is not only cultural, but it's also within families. Jesus says in verse 53 that when you have a family of five, it's going to be two versus three and three versus two. Father against son, mother against daughter, daughter against mother. You'll have in-laws fighting over this question of Christ. Now we see this around the world in different places. There are some places in the world where following Christ is illegal and converting to Christ is illegal. In many of these places, uh, in the East especially, what you have is, is what's called honor killings. That whenever you accept Christ, they believe that you are bringing shame on a family and that the only response to that family at best is to isolate you and to cut you off and treat you as someone who is dead. And at worst, their response is to actually kill you. And that's what it's like following Christ in much of the world. There is a current division that Jesus speaks of. But we also see this in our own families as well, I think. We just came back from the holidays where you might have gathered with family. You might have talked with family on the phone. And that divide is seen even there. Where you love Christ, you adore him. And that puts you at odds with the rest of your family. How do we respond whenever we in our culture or in our own families face this division because of Christ? I think there are four ways that we ought to respond. I The first thing we have to do, and hopefully this is an obvious one, is we have to pray. We never cease praying for family that's apart from Christ. We never cease praying for a family that might even jeer you and ridicule you because of your faith in Christ. We pray. Secondly, not only do we pray, but we also have to live with integrity. Oftentimes with your family, one of the things that they will do when the issues of Christ comes up is they will point back to your past failures. They might even point back to your current failures. And you have a couple of options of handling this. What I recommend is when they bring up your past failures, you use this as an opportunity. You use it as an opportunity to show humility and to confess your sins. But you also use that opportunity as a way to promote the gospel of Christ. You're right. I did live that way. You're right. I did make those mistakes which is why I need Jesus. So use those opportunities to share Christ, but live with integrity. We do this in our families, but brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to do this publicly out in the world as well. I, I was on Twitter not that long ago, and I, I don't know why I'm still on Twitter. It's like a dumpster fire. Um, and, and I feel like normal people aren't on Twitter. It's just like extremes of both ends, but, I still get on there from time to time. And I saw a video that broke my heart. It was a church in Texas, packed from wall to wall, front to back, balcony full. And they were being led from the front in the chant, Let's go, Brandon. Everybody, or just about everybody, knows what exactly that phrase means and to have a church that claims christ to stand up in unison and begin to chant something like that does nothing but condemn the church of god we have to be people who walk and live in integrity that says no ill thing about people but but lives a life of of generosity and kindness, seeking to save those who are lost and not condemn them. We live with integrity, we pray, but we share with boldness as well. Paul said in Romans 3, verse 10, I am not ashamed of the gospel. In Romans chapter 10, he describes the God that we serve. And why we shouldn't give up in proclaiming the gospel. And Paul writes in quoting God, he says, All day long I've held out my hands to disobedient and defiant people. This is a, this is the posture of our God. That all day long he holds out his hands, longing for people to come to him. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says that the Lord does not delay in his promise as some understand delay. But is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So we pray, we live with integrity, we share with boldness. And finally, how do we live in a divided world? We go back to Hebrews chapter 3 and we encourage one another. If you are facing difficulty and division at work based off of your faith in Christ share it with a brother or sister in Christ. Not so that you can together vent and be angry, but so that you can pray and strategize for the gospel. If you have division in your own family, how do you encourage one another? You don't keep that pent up inside and let it be a weight to you and you alone, but you share that weight with other brothers and sisters in Christ So that you can pray together and strategize together and carry that weight together, but encourage one another. It's one of the reasons why we can't be isolated and alone. Finally, this text points to the urgent response we all need to make. Jesus in verses 57 through 59 says this. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the ruler, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Then he won't drag you before the judge, and the judge hands you over to the bailiff, and the bailiff throw you into prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. What is Jesus talking about here? Somehow it's related to the text that we've been going through already, and it's somewhat confusing because Jesus mentions this same type of story in Matthew chapter five. But in Matthew chapter 5, what Jesus is saying is that we need to get along and reconcile with each other. What Jesus is saying here is not that we need to reconcile with each other, but rather we need to reconcile with God himself. That a result of our unbelief, a result of our rebellion, is that we owe a debt to God and God's wrath is going to be on us. So how do we settle our accounts with God? Here's the short answer. We can't. We cannot settle our own sin debt with God. There's nothing we can say. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can pay God back. Our rebellion, our debt of sin is so big, it's impossible for us to pay. And that is where we have the gift of Jesus. That Jesus pays our debt for us. And He does it fully. It's not like Jesus is a cosigner of a loan. You ever get a cosigner as a loan? I've had to have a cosigner, especially when I was starting off and young. My parents graciously would cosign a loan for me to get a car, to get a house or whatever. But what is a cosign? A cosign on a loan is whenever the bank looks at you and says, you know, your employment history is not good enough. Your credit history is not good enough. We're not willing to give you the loan on your own. You need a co-signatory. And so you go and you get a co-signatory who says, I will take over and carry the weight of the debt if this other person is not able to. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus isn't co-signing a loan where it's like, I'm gonna be as good as I possibly can. And where I fail, Jesus will pick up the slack. What we are saying, according to the gospel, is that we can't carry any of the slack. We can't pay any of the debt. We we don't need a cosigner to our debt. We just need somebody who will say, I will take the wrath. I will take the debt for you. And that is exactly what Christ has done for us. He's taken the debt and the weight of sin Upon himself, he took the wrath of God so we could walk in the righteousness of Christ. So how do we respond as someone who's been forgiven like this? Well, we don't respond like someone who feels entitled. Whenever people are entitled, they feel like they are owed something. And oftentimes we walk as entitled people with God. God, why did you let this happen? God, why can't I have this? God, why does my life look like this? What are we doing? But we're walking as someone who believes that God owes us something. That's not how we walk when we've been forgiven such an enormous crushing debt. So how do we walk? We walk as people who are humble, We walk as people who are grateful because we realize the enormity of what has been done for us. And it begins to affect our lives. And it affects our lives in that we begin to walk like God. We begin to walk like Christ. Here's just one way of what that looks like. The New Testament says time and time again that when we have been forgiven, we also forgive. That we had this great debt against God because of how we've lived in rebellion, but he has forgiven that debt through Christ. Whenever you live your life, there will be times when people sin against you, when people hurt you, and they build up this debt that they owe you. And what we are called to do is to forgive other people the way that Christ has forgiven us. Think about what that means in a world where we are divided. When we are divided, the world and sometimes family will attack us. They will accuse us. They might even abuse us. But how are we called to walk in that? We walk in forgiveness, knowing what God has done for us. And we try to do that for others, forgiving them of their sins. Advent is a time when we look forward to the incarnation of Christ. We just celebrated with these four candles up here. We look forward to the incarnation of Christ, of Christ in a manger as a baby. But Advent is also a time when we look forward to the second coming of Christ, of Christ. That second coming of Christ is he's not coming as a baby in a manger, but he's coming as judge of the world. So let us live our lives grateful that in his judgment, we will be pronounced innocent in Christ and let us walk accordingly. Let's stand and pray.